0: And if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Camila Thorndike. Most recently, Camila managed Senator Sanders' portfolio on climate, energy, environment, territories, and tribes. The focus of her tenure was the Build Back Better Act passed in 2021 out of the Senate Budget Committee and House of Representatives. The majority of the bill's climate policies were retained in the subsequent Inflation Reduction Act passed by the Senate in 2022. I was excited for this one, especially as a follow up to the recent episode I did with Benji Backer, who, of course, is very active in the conservative climate circles. And Senator Sanders, of course, plays on a different side of the spectrum on the progressive left. And it was very interesting, especially just after the Inflation Reduction Act passed to hear from Camila on how she's feeling about it, what aspects of it she thinks should be celebrated, where it missed the mark, where we go from here, but also just a higher level discussion, of course, on her journey to doing the work that she's doing and how she got into activism, how she got into climate work, but just a really great long form discussion on things like climate justice, energy poverty, the policy and regulatory landscape, and how it's evolved. We talk about the polarized climate in the US politics. We talk about the two-party system and whether it's run its course. We talk about the role of innovation, how far it can take us, and also just a punch list of thorny topics, stuff like nuclear, stuff like carbon removal, stuff like carbon markets and offsets, stuff like net zero commitments from big corporates, the role of fossil fuel companies and the role of fossil fuels today and looking forwards, and a number of other things. At any rate, very thankful that Camila took the time to come on the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Camila Thorndyke, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I I'm so excited to have you, and it's funny because we, well, it's not funny, but we had a little mix-up the first time we scheduled this, and I found out that the podcast recording software we use can only record one at a time, and Cody had a different one recorded in the same time slot, so we couldn't do it, and I was like, oh, man, if we don't get Camila to come back, I'll be so disappointed, but you were very gracious, and, and it's also just such interesting timing because you recently stepped down from your role with Senator Sanders and, you know, the IRA bill, of course, just, I was going to knock on wood, but I, I mean, I think it passed, right? It did. Yeah. So there's so much to talk about. And this is like your first time, I think, after stepping down where you're actually taking a breath and saying something publicly. So what an honor for our little show.
1: Well, thanks so much. It's fun to get to speak on my own behalf now. It's going back to the old days for me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, and that's what we love to get people is, you know, right after they leave some place where they had to be very careful with their words so that, you know, and and maybe it's too fresh. I don't know. Maybe you still have to be somewhat careful with your words. But I mean, that's why people ask, like, why haven't you had anyone on from oil and gas? And it's not. uh, And we've had some, but we, you know, we haven't had anyone from the big oil majors, for example, that are still currently in the roles. And we would love to but if people are going to come on and just have such manufactured talking points and a dozen handlers around them and things like that, then it's just not going to maximize learning. And this show is all about learning. So I think that's been my my resistance in the past. And, and probably, to be honest, the same thing with elected officials, too. I mean, we've had some, but it's like they're just so scripted. I mean, that's my bias. I'm an entrepreneur. but And I, I just want to have real discussions, right? And, and if you can't just like talk and function, because you're so worried about its, its content, it's a show, then it's, it's like, what's the point?
1: I hear that. <laughs> I will try to be as unscripted as I possibly can. <laughs> no
0: pressure. <laughs> but maybe for starters, Camila, just, I, I mean, I mean, I obviously know some, but for listeners' benefit, just give a quick snapshot on who you are
1: and what you were doing most recently. Sure. So I'm originally from Southern Oregon. My mom is a organic cut flower farmer. So I grew up down there on the farm with her on the summers. And my dad rode his bike 40 miles a day to work and back doing actually sort of small American manufacturing, which will loop back to our the bill that just passed. So I just grew up in a part of the world where I had a lot of incredible outdoor time and a really supportive community with parents who were really involved in the community itself and have been an activist myself since about sixth grade. (laughs) I started in human rights, tried to get all my friends to come to my Amnesty International Club during lunch instead of (laughs) go shoot hoops or whatever it was.
0: I don't mean to interject, but I just want to say I have a fifth grader and that's crazy because I see what you know, <laughs> him and his friends are doing and it's definitely not, you know, setting up Amnesty International booths and, <laughs> and 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 being an activist. So major props. But anyways, keep going.
1: Oh, well, it was fun to discover at the end of high school, early college, that organizing people to take action on on things that I, I think matter can be a job, which is why I love what you're doing here. To show people all the pathways to be of service to something, you know, greater than ourselves or greater than profit. And and I really discovered the kind of climate movement per se in its early days as a freshman at Whitman College. I'd taken a gap year and seen my family all around the world. I had family in South America and Australia and Europe and the first impacts were becoming clear if you were looking i spent my 18th birthday my cousins got me a little scuba diving adventure on the great barrier reef and i saw the bleached reef on one side and the healthy reef on the other and my grandmother was in santiago chile and could see the snow you know receding up the mountain higher and higher every year and the rains coming at strange times and so when i got to college i had already realized that all of my human rights passion you know, And all the the progress that had made been made, especially for women and girls around the world, would be rolled back. <laughs> we would lose so much for human rights, for democracy, for equity, if we didn't really look at the existential threat to our environment. So I got involved with Bill McKibben's first work, Step It Up, the beginnings of the 350.org, and divestment movements, everything to come. And was there in 2009, lobbying for the Waxman-Markey cap and trade bill, as were 12,000 young people from all around the country wearing green hard hats and listening to Van Jones. And so what we'll probably talk about today is sort of a real bookend to that journey as as so many people have been fighting for U.S. climate legislation for for decades. And we failed back then. It didn't clear the Senate. So to have any kind of climate legislation actually make it through that anti-democratic chamber feels a bit like a miracle.
0: So you I mean you talked about some of that activism back in the Washington Markey times but what about professionally so what was your first foray into the professional world and then how did that ultimately intersect with the climate and energy work that you've been doing most recently
1: Sure yeah so after that bill's failure I was a junior in college so many people dropped out of the political side of the movement and looked at well you know, if we're not going to get climate legislation, how can I make a difference? And to me, the answer was looking at conflict that would arise over natural resource scarcity. So I was lucky to get a Udall scholarship, which is a small federal scholarship based out of foundation in Arizona. And that gave me the opportunity to intern for the U.S. Institute for Environmental Conflict Resolution, which I think now goes by a different probably equally long name. But it helped federal agencies resolve conflicts between each other and engage in upstream policy planning, as well as facilitate really pre-court decision-making between the agencies and the communities that they impact. So you might think about like waste siding on Bureau of Land Management territory and how that impacts Native American communities or the clean air act and how you might promulgate regulations starting with you know really upstream planning between several agencies EPA CEQ and the like so it was the whole idea is that there's there are these tools <laughs> to enable humans to make better decisions together collaboratively that lead to more win-win outcomes and keep people out of costly litigation and protracted difficult court battles. And so that was a really important foundation to my organizing and campaigning going forward as I took those skills and then ran the outreach for a large public land use campaign in southern Arizona to try to build public support and consensus that maybe we don't need endless sprawl and to turn the demand for livable, walkable communities into actual policy in the general and, and comprehensive plan updates at the county and municipal level. And then I founded a nonprofit called, now it's called Our Climate. It was started in Oregon to get young people skilled up in direct climate policy advocacy and get folks engaged in that through large public art projects. So from about 2014, 2015 until 2016, I started that organization with an incredible crew of, of young people. And we introduced two carbon pricing bills in the Oregon State Legislature and helped generate this groundswell of of grassroots support that then led me to D.C. And I led a carbon tax and rebate campaign there that turned into a 100% renewable portfolio standard. It was. It's still the strongest such law in the country with the Chesapeake Climate Action Network that I was working for. And then I went to grad school, and then did some other things, and then I went to the Senate. So there's my life. <laughs> uh-huh. And
0: we can't gloss over what you've been doing most recently. So maybe just give a, a quick snapshot on what you're doing with Senator Sanders and his team.
1: Sure. So I joined Senator Sanders' team as energy and environment legislative assistant. And that meant I was, along with my colleague Ethan, managing the whole portfolio on climate, energy, environment, including tribes, territories. And at the beginning of my tenure, there was some work on transportation. So tracking bills, staying abreast of the issues, drafting talking points, making vote recommendations. That's part of the work of being a a legislative assistant. Great.
0: So first of all, thank you for that. Super interesting. And also super exciting for me because I don't think our professional, other than of course climate, like our professional backgrounds haven't overlapped at all. And your background and training is such an important lever for change. And it's one of the ones that I probably understand the least. So anyway, it's just a sight to to have this discussion. And probably a lot of our listeners, not all of our listeners, they come from diverse backgrounds, but I think a good chunk of our listeners are in the same boat as me. They're coming from, you know, the traditional technology world, startups, things like that. And but really want to understand how to make a dent in climate. And if you really want to make a dent in climate, there's no silver bullets, right? I mean, you need... Something from everything, right? So, but we can come back to that. What I like to do in these episodes, and I've started doing more recently is before we actually get into your work, just get some context of how you think about the problem itself. So can you talk a bit about when you first started organizing and being an activist and, and also, of course, your, your professional pursuits, like how did you think about the problem of climate change then? And how has that evolved since you first started doing this work many years ago?
1: I was about 15 when I first saw that classic hockey graph, hockey stick chart, right, with just temperature and emissions going sky high without end. And I plotted my own lifetime against that and realized that, you know, around the time that I would especially be considering having kids or whatever in my around my 30, <laughs> 30s, I, you know, we would start to see the escalation of this crisis. and. So that was when I realized that at the time the grown-ups were not coming to save us and my generation would have to, you know, fight to take the wheel. <laughs> and so it's always been a truly existential question for me, you know, re- thinking far ahead, I think of climate change as a failure of imagination, both in terms of not understanding just how horrific the unraveling of our natural systems and and cycles and resources and livable temperature ranges and the rest you know really can be and it's also a failure of imagination or it has been in terms of solutions and what a wonderful world might be possible if we were to take the problem seriously and you know you've seen that cartoon probably that has a United Nations conference with a drop down banner and you know a list of of things that would be better like why why wouldn't we want cleaner air want safer communities want more money in our pockets all all of these co benefits that would be possible that so that's sort of how i've tried to engage the public and build coalition is both the immediate benefits that we can a- accrue from taking action on the policy level, knowing that individual action really is, is not enough and it never has been enough and in fact has been cultivated by industry in a backlash to the bedrock environmental laws passed in the 70s to make us think of ourselves as individual consumers instead of citizens and make these overwhelming problems that they are causing the responsibility of an individual consumer and you know whether or not you brought your reusable tote bag to the grocery store today so my work is trying to expand our imagination And understand that this is a collective action problem that that requires all of us to get engaged in social change. Uh Uh-huh. And
0: obviously you're a lot more well-versed in the nature of the problem now than when you started. But what about your worldview on the nature of the problem? Do you think about it similarly, or have there been any noticeable differences or evolutions in how you frame the problem in your own head?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. I'll say that the the most major shift in my climate work has been from focusing exclusively on carbon pricing, like a carbon tax or cap and trade, and thinking, well, if we all put our shoulder to the wheel against this, you know, one transformative pathway, then... Everything else we want will flow from that and that we need to all focus on one thing at a time in order to break through the political barriers enacted by, you know, put in place by the fossil fuel industry to what, you know, we actually see now in the Inflation Reduction Act and the Build Back Better Act before it, which is a whole universe of different solutions that tackle the demand side, the supply side, and every sector of the economy in large part through in the case of this bill, throwing money at, at the solution so that it's about kind of more carrots and less sticks. I'm not saying that I I still very much would love to see an economy-wide, you know, economic shift that properly prices the incredible costs of pollution and fossil fuel use, but my theory of of change has shifted. Especially after working on a carbon tax at the district level in Washington, DC, where we had zero Republicans on the district's council, the governing body, and still couldn't get it done. So I think, you know, Dave Roberts and other writers have for a long time suggested that what we need is to build up the political muscles of the clean energy and energy efficiency industries. And then, you know, we'll be on a more level, playing field politically in order to enact the kind of, you know, deep level change that we need and that it's it's not an either or, right? Like we actually can think about penalizing fossil fuel use while incentivizing clean energy. So my thinking through the hard knocks of experience has just gotten, you know, more complex and maybe I've just been beaten down, <laughs> but it's a little bit like we'll take what we can get and build from there.
0: Okay, well, that's a really nice segue because something that I wrestle with, and I, I know a number of people, including our listeners and several other guests from the show wrestle with as well, is that on the one hand, we need bold action and our action isn't bold enough and we're not moving fast enough and we need to move faster and more robustly and across more segments of the economy and more globally and just more right? And on the other hand, if you try to be too bold, right, then you don't meet people where they are and take people along with you. And and then you could end up, the risk is that you don't get anything done. And so how do you navigate when the incremental stuff, well, I'm saying this like a statement, but really it's, want to hear if this is how you think about it too, when the stuff we need is the bold stuff, but the bold stuff isn't going to get done. And so get done what we can, which is the incremental stuff, but the incremental stuff won't get us to where we need to go. So what do you do with that? How do you move forward?
1: I have always wanted to aim for the the biggest and the boldest in terms of, of policymaking and think that there's absolutely no reason not to start there when you're creating a campaign or, you know, I, I can't speak to trying to transform the private sector from within, but certainly in terms of, you know, launching a, a policy campaign, you know, in any negotiation that you have to, you have to peg high, right? You have to, you have to aim for a high target, knowing that the process of, of negotiating for public support and, duking it out with the opposition is going to water down your initial goal so and i don't think that there's any reason to try to pull the wool over people's eyes with you know a notion that like this is going to be somehow easy and the incremental little itty bitty bits here and there are going to be enough it's really vital to (laughs) frame the problem honestly and therefore push for solutions of equal honesty, which can seem radical and seem out of reach and ridiculous to many because they're they're so far from how we're living right now, but <laughs> no successful movement has ever started from the place of political palatability on some level, right, You ha- you have to go for what we know is needed. I think the question of, you know, what do you then do with the incremental steps you absolutely take them. Like if, if you have exhausted all of your options, if you've laid it all on the table and you know fought till the bitter end, as long as it's doing more good than harm, and that your audience understands it is not going to fully solve the problem and the coalition that you're working with, you know, doesn't feel totally thrown under the bus. I think those are the conditions by which you can actually accept an an incremental change and and note it as an incremental change and use what you've just won and just keep going. And honestly, we're going to have to do that for the rest of time. Like there is nothing big enough to quote unquote solve the climate crisis. Like it's happening and it's accelerating much more quickly than I think any or most of us thought it would. And so there's kind of isn't a limit to how big and bold we need to go. It's just a question of how many people we can bring into the fight and how quickly we can notch those wins.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Would you categorize the climate challenge as an emergency? Oh, definitely. Uh Uh-huh. I've heard some people say that what we need is almost like a World War II style mobilization. Does that resonate with you or how would you frame the type of mobilization that is necessary?
1: Yeah, the... The climate emergency, you know, the declaration of climate emergency that much of the progressive climate movement has been pushing Biden to declare is very much built on the good work that that many advocates have done over years to try to show that we need something like war We need a wartime footing for this problem. And in many ways, the bill that just passed begins to reflect that sense of urgency and understanding of the scale of the challenge you know i don't think a 4 degree celsius world is truly imaginable to to many of us i think we can kind of like sci-fi our way there maybe but there's no amount of money or work that if we imagine ourselves in that sort of like parched burning <laughs> flooded hungry armed landscape would wish that we hadn't spent. So that's the problem of of the climate crisis is that the moment we're in now is there's such a big lag between the emissions and their consequences, and then the actions that we take to try to solve the problem in any sense that what we did, you know, turned down the temperature, that I think it's that cognitive dissonance that we're struggling with on a broad scale that can make those of us who are pushing for like a World War II or a greater level of emergency response to this issue seem radical, when in fact, it, it's radical to let the planet burn and billions of people die, which is most certainly the, the path that we're heading on without action that's commensurate to the scale of the problem.
0: So, I mean, we sit at this point and we look forwards. If we look backwards for a moment, I mean, the last couple hundred years, let's say, and the Industrial Revolution and capitalism and manufacturing and jobs and whatever, all of it, right? Looking back, do you wish it never happened? Or I guess, how do you feel, regardless of where we sit looking forwards, how do you feel at this point looking backwards?
1: The question being, do I wish the industrial revolution had ever happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, wow. Gosh, these are almost impossible questions to answer because, you know, I only have the one life that I'm living with all of the modern conveniences that I yeah, have. But, but-
0: Most people jump right into like, you know, are flow batteries viable or things like that? But it's like, until you understand at this level, I don't know how you assess anyone. It's like because then we're not operating off the same sheet of music if we have different assumptions about like the state of the state at the highest level right then it's like of course we're going to be crossing streams if we try to you know tweet about some fusion company or something
1: (laughs) yeah you know i think about like for instance the green revolution right that came about from fossil fuel based fertilizer and just the absolute explosion in in population and Resulting consumption that came from what was an attempt to, you know, solve world hunger. And (laughs) do I wish that hadn't happened? Like, it's a deep philosophical question as to, like, whose lives matter, let's say. And so I, putting aside, like, do I wish that the, you know, billions of people, including myself, hadn't gotten the chance to have life on Earth? It would be better if we had. An agricultural system that was not tied to fossil fuels. I can feel unequivocally good about saying that. And so many of these sort of Pandora's boxes that that we've opened that then can't be shut <laughs> but need to then be replaced? You know, in this case, like can we actually feed ourselves and and power our lives off of clean energy to replace the amount of fossil fuels that we're we're consuming now? A lot of analysts would say, no, we actually need to massively cut back on consumption. And others would say, well, yes, if we had, you know, solar across Arizona and wind filling up the Great Plains and, you know, small modular nuclear reactors or like a whole suite of solutions, we could actually power our lives fully off of non-fossils. But I tend to think that there's a deeper question than just, you know, a one-for-one energy replacement. And it does have to do with our relationships, right? To not only each other, but the natural world that we live in, our sense of place and time, you know, are we actually entitled to everything that we have? Do we need everything that apparently, you know, is essential? Like, and this is where this is where the conversation gets sort of uncomfortable a lot of the times, because can we imagine life without SUVs and flat screen CVs or single family housing, right? Or getting on an airplane and most of the time trying to sell, you know, anything but our current American reality is just like, oh, well, that's a wet blanket. We're not going to go there. On the other hand, I think about all the things that make me happy and they're actually the simple Things and like that I would give up so much if it meant that I could actually live in a community where all of my friends were nearby. I didn't have to fly across the country to see my family. I wasn't staring at a screen all day, you know, and like I could ride my bike without fear of getting hit by a car at any moment, and that that's a little bit of a pre industrial vision on the other hand, would I want to not have modern medicine like No, like, (laughs) I am grateful for that. And would I want to go back to a time when, you know, women were fully second class citizens, putting Roe aside for a minute. No, also. So I think we just have to kind of like live in the moment that we're in and try to do everything we can to live in a right size to what the what the earth offers.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And so a few more questions like this, just to kind of get a fuller picture of the Framework before we jump into more of the how. Do you think that fossil fuel companies and the fossil fuel industry is evil?
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, I think greed is evil, and greed and ego tend to take us down as humans, no matter what the industry or point in history or place on Earth. And it just so happens that, you know, the energy in fossil fuels is just so dense. You can power so much from so little, you know, material, be it coal or oil or gas, that the profit is enormous, right? The actual work done in terms of compare a horse and buggy to, you know, the truck in your driveway, like, that's what makes the industry so profitable, right? It doesn't take very much to extract that amount of energy. And so you can make incredible money, keeping us all sort of addicted to it. You know, last year alone, the 25 top oil companies made $205 billion in profits. That's staggering, and at a time when they've through you know lobbying and campaign contributions, blocked alternatives to fossil fuels for decades and kept Americans and people around the world dependent on gasoline to get around and that gasoline costs you know five six plus dollars, like the difference between what regular people are struggling with having to choose between keeping the lights on and getting to work and being able to afford their prescription medicine or feed their kids, like, and then to have that level of money flowing to so few, you know, CEOs and shareholders, there is something evil about that. There is something that is a system that's like so unequal and so callous to human suffering and I say "system," because I hesitate to call many people <laughs> evil, you know themselves, and I have had friends who work in the you know oil and gas sectors as engineers or you know actually grown up in a family on my dad's side that engages in steel manufacturing and you know coal goes into steel, so I don't pretend to be different on a like basic human level from anybody else that's trying to get ahead or make a living or you know execute their ambitions but i would challenge anyone who is in the fossil fuel sector to consider putting their talents elsewhere because to my mind there's no greater source of harm than continuing to to cook the planet which we've known for decades now
0: when you think about the nature of the problem. And I mean, you talked about degrees and you didn't say it, but global heating, there's some debate about whether in order to tackle a wicked problem like climate change, global heating, it requires focus, like, for example, carbon or GHGs versus how everything's intertwined and you can't reform this thing without forming that thing and this thing and that thing and everything needs to change together. I feel like we're right back to the same chicken and egg, right? Of like, well, let's say that's true. Well, if we try to change everything at once, we change nothing. But if we try to change any one thing, then it one, you're not bringing the other things along, which are also problems. But two, are you even going to be able to change that one thing if the other things aren't also, you know, kind of making the landscape more ready to accommodate that thing in its evolved form? So, I don't know what the question is in there, but the, I guess the question is just, how do you think about that You know, kind of bundling versus unbundling and focus?
1: Yeah, this is a great question and, and very relevant to the point that we're at in the climate movement, because where there had been in my early days, such an exclusive focus on, say, carbon pricing, now we have a Green New Deal framework. And I think that for an organization or individual to be effective, having measurable goals is really important, right? Like to actually, you can have a, a vision in the case of the Green New Deal, a vision of interrelated climate, economic, and racial justice, and a coalition that represents those those interests working together towards a transformation of the way we run our country. and you know, treat each other. The Green New Deal itself is a is an incredibly expansive vision that you can say goes, you know, well and above beyond just climate. But I think then it kind of begs the question, well, what is what is climate change? Like what is what does it mean to work on something that is caused by so many habits and sources of pollution and affects everything in our life. And so I would say that for us to be effective in trying to reduce pollution and ensure that we can continue winning legislation that makes it possible for us to get off of fossil fuels, you actually do need to have a somewhat broad lens because let's just look at the problem of sacrifice zones in this country. If you have a politics based off of white supremacy, like white people owning black people for chattel slavery to create cotton that produced the wealth of this country, and then the epic fights that are still going on to decide whether we would hold together in the Civil War and whether, you know, we would actually create some sort of equal society in in Reconstruction and then its failure and everything that followed, right? The Electoral College, the existence of the Senate, the use of the filibuster, like racial injustice is part and parcel of American government and politics. And that relates to climate change in the sense that fossil fuel companies cite their extraction and their waste zones (laughs) near black and brown communities. So can we really take on the fossil fuel industry without listening to and incorporating and boosting the voices of the people who have borne you know, the greatest harms from that industry and preventing that industry from, you know, being a backyard, terrible neighbor to anyone. Well, that means that we actually have to value, there has to be racial justice (laughs) so that there aren't sacrifice zones where the industry can continue polluting. And that means we have to have a coalition that also cares about, you know, black maternal mortality rates or voter suppression. like All of these things are connected. And I think it's very important that we have an overarching narrative that paints the big picture. When it comes to actually passing a bill, we have to also be able to identify what is the bill that we want to pass. And measure its success. And that's what I actually really like about working on policy is that you know whether you win or lose. You know whether you got something done or not. And I imagine the private sector, you know, objectives and key results and KPIs and you know everything is is also very very measured. It, it's just the question of what are we measuring? And in that sense, I don't think it's just greenhouse gases. I don't think it's just, you know, temperature in an average way. It's, have we actually brought everyone along? Otherwise, there's going to be places and loopholes that the industry can continue doing dirty business.
0: We're going to take a short break so our partner, Ian, can talk about the MCJ membership option.
1: Hey, folks. Ian here, a
2: partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, Nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, Idea Jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. Back to the show. When I hear
0: climate justice, often what's brought up is what you just talked about, you know, the plants going in the backyards of people who don't have the means to be supercharged nimbies, right? or voter suppression or, or things like that. I'm, I'm curious how you think about, for example, the f- fossil plant closures or the decline of the fossil industry and the local communities whose economies were built on the backs of those plants and that industry, and also the billion-plus people that don't have access to basic electricity. As you know, emissions in our country and in the West generally, I believe, are falling, right? And much of the growth is going to come from the developing world that hasn't had access to the same now, again, quality of life is, a. I mean, we can debate about the term quality of life and what defines quality of life and, and is quality of life, you know, intertwined with, with energy abundance, right? But haven't had access to the same energy abundance that we've had in the West. So, so how do you think about justice in, in those regards?
1: Good set of questions there. I, on the question of developed countries, I mean, we really are at the point where we should be able to leapfrog the fossil fuel-based industrial transformation that has led to, you know, extreme global economic inequity and that's why you know financing developing countries access to clean energy and energy efficiency is so incredibly important whether or not the US at this point, you know, zeros out our emissions is less important than what China and India and the BRIC countries do and yet because we have disproportionately benefited, you know, 25% of consumption coming from a country with 4% of its population. And it is our responsibility to provide the capital and the technical expertise to facilitate the leapfrogging over fossil fuels. And in, in some cases that's happening, but by and large, the U.S. radically underperforms in our commitments through the UN process or whatever it might be to actually pony up, right, to our promises. And that's not even getting into, you know, the funds needed for adaptation and the harms that these countries are disproportionately facing right now. So one part you just touched
0: on, which is developing countries and the West. The other piece was, how do you think about justice as it relates to segments of the U.S. population who are living in local communities where the economies are tied to and reliant on the fossil fuel industry?
1: Certainly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the sort of just transition question if that's what you're getting at. I mean, I think that those communities deserve the the first and best boost of support. This isn't a question of throwing people away. It's a question of transforming the energy sources that we use and who gets to benefit from them. And you know, in this sense, the coal workers in Appalachia left with black lung and polluted Rivers and terrible air quality and generational poverty. That's the legacy of an extractive industry that just turns through bodies, right? In the same way that the Gulf South has faced with the oil industry offshore or any number of communities adjacent to to coal plants. And, you know, I think that that is a very positive development in the kind of climate space, if you will, is to really start to talk about these people, you know, who have brought us (laughs) this energy and then basically been left to die. And if we are serious, those of us in the clean energy and efficiency spaces about this promise of a new economy delivering benefits to everyone and that therefore everyone should vote for it, (laughs) we really have to make sure that these jobs are not abstract in any way. And I think that the transition, for instance, from tobacco workers in the southeast to when there was the effort, right, to get people to stop smoking, in many ways there was some failures in the just transition then that we should be learning from. Like if you're working in tobacco cultivation and, and harvesting, are you really going to be satisfied if you're then transferred to like a call center <laughs> in this case? Less money totally different skill set, different sense of identity. And we should be able to, I think, in, in the case of energy, really build on the progress that they've made around prevailing wages, ensuring apprenticeships, really embracing the unionization of the workforce in the same way that the fossil fuel industry has done, or maybe they resist it, but the fact is that the fossil fuel industry is much more unionized than clean energy. I think you know solar and wind have only like four or six percent of the workforce unionized, and that's a huge problem because then people can't actually believe that they're going to get similar paychecks and be able to maintain you know their quality of life and their the pride that they have in their work if you know along come kind of stereotype of the big blue city coastal elites. It just makes that stereotype very easy for our opposition to manipulate public opinion against what truly will generate more jobs and a better quality of life. But we can't be fuzzy about that transition. We have to direct targeted investments to these energy communities, as they're called.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And and some would rightfully argue that every day we enable fossil fuels to continue being burned, the planet will continue to get hotter, and therefore we should get off of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And others would point out that that you can't just rip the Band-Aid and be done because millions of people would die and suffer, and that we're still reliant on them whether we want to be or not. So How do you think about the phasing of the transition and how to balance transitioning as aggressively as possible with minimizing how much glass gets broken along the way? And when I say glass, I'm talking about, you know, human mortality and suffering.
1: Well, I admit I have yet to see any hard data or case studies about a transition that's gone so fast. that there are more lives being lost or ruined from getting off of fossil fuels than dealing with their effects. So I think that right now, as we saw over the last year or two, the fossil fuel industry is using this, hold on, everybody's like, we gotta have a managed transition. We gotta plan this thing out. Let's not move too fast. That is a just another layer of spin to add on decades of first you know, denial and then, oh, it's too expensive. And now, oh, it's too fast. Like, I don't buy it.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. And so what is the, the right path? I mean, do you, like, tactically, I don't even know how we, we would, but is your preference that we essentially just rip the Band-Aid and, and stop burning fossil fuels immediately?
1: If you're asking about some hypothetical scenario of, like, just turning off all the valves, I don't. Think that my mind even goes there because I am a sort of pragmatic political thinker on in most ways. So I, to be honest, haven't really considered that because it, you know we're so far from being able to have that kind of political power. I do but, think. But you, that but you say
0: you say we we aren't moving nearly fast enough, and we're too incremental. And we need bolder action. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is, what does that bolder action look like if we? go at a level that makes you feel like we are more on track for how we should be and need to be?
1: Sure. I think when I think about a really rapid transition, if we have, let's say, a carbon tax that is at a high enough level to actually economically shut off the valves, no kind of serious climate policy expert is going to suggest that from today to tomorrow, you know, $0 Zero dollars a ton to two hundred dollars a ton. Every realistic proposal, even the ones that are like pegged at as rapid a transition as we need according to the science, will have it phase in. So you'd have incrementally increasing fees, and then the question is, what you do with the money? So if we're if there's all this wealth in the fossil fuel industry that is concentrated in the hands of the very very few. We're effectively saying, hey, let's get that wealth, like spread it out, share it. (laughs) And that's that's really what like a carbon fee and dividend or rebate would do is tax that crazy profit and share it with everyone so that you are not left to your own devices as the cost of fossil fuels in a world where we don't have alternatives at our fingertips, you know, skyrockets, you would actually be made more than whole if you're using less than the average amount of, of fuel or you know, on the bottom levels, you know, of, of the economic ladder. So that's one scenario in which everything is kind of phased in but rapidly increases so that basically these there's not an option. Like you shouldn't be able to afford this stuff, but you have all this money coming to you in your pocket. We also though have to have these targeted investments to actually build up the alternatives to fossil fuel, which this bill and certainly the Build Back Better Act did, from you know, manufacturing to transportation to clean energy sources themselves. That just like most periods of rapid innovation in our country, whether it was the Industrial Revolution or the creation of you know the internet era, required huge government investment you know in r&d and really targeted subsidies and that's what the investment tax credit and the production tax credit which have existed for a long time for clean energy have done and that what this bill is trying to do across the board is say like let's throw a lot of money at this so that it's not an either or like you're not jumping into an un- like at this chasm you actually have alternative products and ways of getting around
0: Uh Well, gosh, I have so many additional questions on the path we're on. But I mean, given that we're already a good, I mean, more than 50 minutes
1: into the episode, I haven't asked you yet. What do you think about the bill? It's a good start is my answer. I don't think that, uh, you know, 300 plus billion dollars of climate investment comes anything near to what, you know, Senator Sanders was proposing originally. It was six trillion dollars for the Build Back Better Act. And obviously not all of that was climate but but the original green new deal on the campaign was like 10 trillion. So in terms of scale, it's true to say that this is the largest investment that our country has ever made in dollars for climate action and it's also a drop in the bucket if we really wanted to get to, you know, 350 parts per million and keep temperatures at 1.5 degrees Celsius. So it's very much a, a yes and this is incredibly exciting and having gone through the multiple rounds of absolute cratering heartbreak that Senator Manchin had, you know, killed the bill in December and then killed it again just a month and a half ago. And this sense that because we only have really every 12 years, the policy window opens for climate change and that the next would come far past the point where it would matter from a physical perspective. Like, I have a very a deep level of relief and of gratitude that we collectively pulled anything off. and I want people who worked on this bill or in the movement at all at any level to savor the victory of getting just this incredible suite of investments across you know lands, forests, buildings transportation electricity manufacturing workforce development like it's a it's a mammoth you know 700 plus pages of largely good things It is also incredibly problematic that we had to rely on a coal Baron to be the 50th vote in the Senate and that you know it's the American Petroleum Institute it's the coal companies it's it's really the people that, or the, the industry that we're fighting that got an incredible comp- deal out of the compromise in terms of the swap for public land, oil and gas leasing, if we want public lands for renewables, the side deal for the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which is devastating, the forcing through of lease sales that had already been stopped in the Gulf and Alaska. You know, those are true poison pills, and no one I know on this side of the fight would have written a bill with that level of, of just absolute disregard back to the communities that I was talking about at the beginning, right? So it's complicated, but that's the situation with the legislature that we have and the way that our system is designed and why it really matters that we all care about things like redistricting and, and voter suppression and filibuster reform and you know the basic fundamentals of, of democratic governance that if we want to have a better shot at any of this, we all need to be participating in.
0: Now, I've heard that from a percentage standpoint, the vast majority of Americans, regardless of what side of the aisle they're on, are now concerned about climate change and want us to be doing more, yet no Republican voted for the IRA bill that ultimately passed. Why do you think that is, especially given what's on the minds of their constituents, seemingly? And relatedly, how do you think about bipartisanship in this polarized time?
1: The Republican Party is entirely bought and paid for by the fossil fuel industry. That's not to say that Democrats, (laughs) many Democrats aren't either. You know, they're like any industry going to pour money across the partisan spectrum to get their way but the level of polarization that we have is no accident when we look back on you know the Kyoto protocols failure in the senate and the days in which like George W H W Bush was actually very reasonable on climate action Nixon created the EPA that's a common example there was a time in which environmental protection and than acting on climate was not as partisan as it is now. And the reason it is now is that the the fossil fuel industry got really spooked (laughs) and started to manipulate both public opinion and their campaign contributions such that you could not be a Republican and be pro-climate. And I think Bob Inglis, the senator from South Carolina, is a great example of this. I don't know, 10 years ago, whenever it was that he was defeated for actually proposing or being in favor of a carbon tax which was originally a republican idea you know let's use the market instead of regulations to drive down emissions and transition to cleaner energy so there were examples like that where republicans willing to do the right thing on climate were punished brutally by coke industries and exxon and friends and so the example was set. You do not cross this line and, and attempt to hold or keep office. And that's sadly the situation that we're in. Do younger Republicans as voters want climate action? Yes, much more so than than older voters. But do we have a democracy in the sense that what voters want is what actually becomes law? <laughs> no, in many ways, right? What, what capital wants becomes law. And I think that... I would keep an eye on how many Republican districts and voters and thought leaders and CEOs can be shifted into clean energy as a, a growing industry and see how in tandem with the unionization of clean energy jobs and the direct investments in communities that you know will actually have better lives due to a transition from fossil fuels that's where there might be some promise but it's going to take a minute.
0: Uh-huh. And then same question in terms of the Democratic Party. So, how do you think about the polarization within the Democratic Party and how do you think about the two-party system in general given where we sit? Two-party system sucks.
1: <laughs> that's my very sophisticated thesis <laughs> on on this problem. I would love to have a parliamentary system or something that where people can Sort into the, you know, ideological and kind of value camps that then have to broker compromise through coalitions that really could, you know, end up with something similar. But we don't have to pretend that like Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin are both somehow in the same party, right? In many ways, they don't line up at all. And you wouldn't have that label in the UK that they would both be wearing. But I think what what we have with the Democrats necessarily being a broad tent and really the only refuge for, at this point, anyone who doesn't want to be basically fascist is like the the Republican, and I don't use that term lightly, but if you have a Republican party, which at this point stands for extreme violence against government and democratic norms and minorities and women, no real regard for the rule of law, and just like a a naked ambition to continue a social structure with, you know, white, cis, hetero men with money at the top, which, again, was the original design of this country, right? You couldn't vote unless you were a white, man with property and he certainly couldn't hold office. So that is, to my mind, the battle that we're fighting right now. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately in the terms, in the sense that it makes it so explicit, like what the camps are, one side fighting for democracy, which is nothing but a process, right? It's not saying like, here is the social pecking order. It's saying, hey, everyone should have a voice and a level of self-determination so that we can craft the government that reflects the plurality of our wishes versus, hey, no, only if you look and sound and act this way and we're born into it, you can have power, you can have self-determination, and everybody else falls under that hierarchy. I'm not sure where we go from here if we don't maintain democratic majorities that can, you know, fight to defend and hopefully expand the democratic structures and norms that we're still hanging on to, but by a thread.
0: Now you you mentioned before the difference between being defined as a consumer versus being defined as a citizen and how the fossil fuel industry sought to deflect responsibility from the systems level change that's needed to making it about you know, wearing your sweater or not flying or things that are more about individual responsibility. In your ideal world, what role should each of us be playing as an individual if we want to do our part to help and not help reinforce the, stereotype is the wrong word, but the deflected responsibility at the expense of true change?
1: Join an organization is what I want to say. We need a robust, like civil society of people who are organized and engaged in governance, politics, social change, whatever you want to call it. That is the greatest contribution you can make as an individual is to join with others, to change the rules of the game that we all live under. And that can exist in any sector, right? But I think the individualization of this problem like we were talking about is by design and we need to see that ideology for what it is the reduce reuse recycle mantra (laughs) has been flipped on its head by industry a great example of this is recycling and the the plastics industry that was you know taken on again in the 70s with the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act. Those were changing the rules of the game through collective action. And so the industry started to freak out and say, how are we going to get people to continue buying our products even if they don't need them? And there's incredible reporting that came out in the last couple years about the advent of the recycling industry, which I don't mean to say is like not valuable. It's just that so much of the little numbers that end up on the bottom of our cartons or whatever it might be were kind of made up in order to create consumer demand for recycling services offered by cities that really weren't set up to do this or necessarily that worked at all. But through concerted lobbying and campaigns, the plastics industry said you know, well, too bad. You guys are going to set up these recycling plants and you're going to provide cartons or boxes on the side of the street that people are going to put their stuff in. And then that'll give the consumer the sense that you can buy things and you're not really throwing away. You're just part of this kind of cycle of life when in fact, you know, the vast majority of plastics are never recycled. But that creates this sense that we don't actually need to change our habits and we can continue in this incredibly consumer-oriented society, buying stuff when it's reduce that's at the top, right? Reduce, reuse is the second, recycle is the last. And I can't tell you how many talks I've given at schools across the country where kids who really want to, you know, be engaged will say, well, at least, you know, I'm recycling and I never know what to say in those moments. Cause it's like, well, that's I so applaud the instinct to, you know, take responsibility and be part of this change. But that's, like, not even the bare minimum. (laughs) So, I actually recommend this podcast called How to Save a Planet. And they did an excellent episode called Is Your Carbon Footprint BS? That really takes on the kind of debate between individual and collective action. And they come out saying, you know, it is both, but it's both in the sense that if you're taking individual action, you're riding your bike, you're bringing your tote bag, you're trying to cut down in consumption, what you're doing is deepening that value for yourself and setting an example for others. If you're going to say like the, sh- the flight shaming movement in Europe, for instance, with Greta Thunberg and others, that was actually effective in driving down the number of flights taken and pollution emitted because it was collective. It was enough people influencing each other that it became essentially a moment of collective action, but that was because individuals didn't just say, oh, I'm not, or choose not to take a flight and stayed quiet about it. They were loud about it. So if you're going to put all your eggs in the individual action basket, you actually have to be very vocal so that you're influencing the people around you.
0: If it's okay, can we just do kind of a a quick punch list of topics that we didn't get to that it'd be great if you just chime in with some quick thoughts on, on each one, if that's possible? Yeah, sure. Great. The first
1: one is nuclear energy. Nuclear energy. Well, now that I'm not in the Senate, <laughs> I can say that, you know, about half of our carbon-free electricity in the U.S. comes from nuclear. And it would be very difficult to meet our climate goals if we were to shut those plants down. There's a difference between investing billions in building new plants to the detriment of renewable energy and choosing to like do away with the plants that we already have online. I certainly believe that we need to keep the ones that are online until we actually have the replacements building new nuclear is a different question because you can't you can't not take into account the incredible harms from mining uranium and then the wicked problem of transporting and storing waste those are not trivial concerns and they disproportionately impact the communities again that always bear the short end of the stick of all these extractive industries actually spent some time in the Navajo Nation and you can see how the coal industry and nuclear and others have, have really sucked those communities dry of the resources that are ostensibly theirs and then left them with the waste. And I can't in good conscience say that you know, we need to be expanding that form of energy production when we have alternatives huh.
0: What about the role of technological innovation in general in addressing climate change?
1: It's necessary, but not sufficient. <laughs> we have the technologies that we need to get off of fossil fuels and live more sustainably. What we've lacked is the political will to make them the first option and the best option for everyone in this country. Do you think that billionaires should exist? No. <laughs>
0: uh, I knew the answer <laughs> to that one.
1: Wh- why is that? There was an interesting study, I want to say in about 2014, out of NASA that tied wealth and income inequality to environmental destruction. And there's been a fun blowback to you know Kylie Jenner and Taylor Swift and all of these extremely wealthy people who are taking 10-minute private jet rides for absolutely frivolous reasons. The level of destruction and consumption and impact that the very wealthiest are responsible for relative to the proverbial 99% is astounding if you look at those numbers. And I wish I had them off the top of my head, but like we cannot, as a functional civilization, have that level of waste enabled by people who have no idea how much money they have and are willing to literally light it on fire. Carbon markets and offsets,
0: what do you think about them?
1: I'm not a fan of offsets in certain specific real life examples, like the California cap and trade market and the way in which it's just shot through with loopholes in the form of of offsets and the very complex accounting involved in ensuring that those emission reductions are real and permanent is just such an opportunity for exploitation. And some of those offsets are incredibly harmful. I think like the examples of indigenous people in Brazil being robbed of their ancestral lands because now suddenly it's you know an offset for someone in California to keep You know, (laughs) their coal plant or oil extraction operation going. Like, that's disgusting. There are some offsets that are, you know, under very rigorous accounting standards and are verifiable. But to use them as a cornerstone of any strategy is, to my mind, inherently suspect because. It shifts the responsibility away from the problem and then conveniently can make it so far that nobody knows what's really going on. And same question, but for carbon removal. Carbon capture and sequestration or CCS or carbon capture utilization and sequestration was a huge downside to this bill. And I got pretty deep into the 45Q tax credit in the fall when we were working on the penultimate version of Build Back Better. And what I learned was incredibly troubling. There's a case for CCS in industrial emissions, because there are few replacements to you know keep manufacturing and, and industry going. There is not a case for electricity sector CCS, because we need to just shut down the coal plants. And we can. That's fully viable. And so this tax credit that is a huge subsidy to the fossil fuel industry, so large, in fact, that some coal plants can be kept online, producing basically no electricity, but still reaping in profits that are literally just a handout from taxpayers. Like That's wrong. Further, the majority of carbon capture and sequestration has been used for something called enhanced oil recovery, which is just you know, turning the captured carbon into a liquid form shot into spent oil wells to extract even more oil. Nobody can pretend that that's a climate solution. What about direct air capture, direct ocean capture? I can't speak to that. Sounds promising. I don't know enough about it. Also, most of these solutions are the last ditch Oh crap, we you know forgot to actually turn off the fossil fuels and now have to deal with far too much carbon in the atmosphere. We're going to have to do that anyways. It's just a matter of operation, can you know order of operation. Can we throw all the money that we're saving for this kind of last minute miracle solution into the technologies and policies that we know actually do work. (laughs) Can we do that first? That would be my preference. So one last one on this, and then a
0: magic wand question, and then we are done. But the last one, it just kind of comes full circle to what we talked about earlier in the discussion, which is around carbon pricing. I've heard some people say as they were reveling in the celebration or the relief or whatever adjectives you want to use of getting the IRA bill, past that it could have come much sooner if the economists hadn't been proposing and pushing on uh, pricing carbon for so long. Do you agree with, with that assessment? And relatedly, how do you think about a carbon price where we sit today, given some of the evolving views that you referenced earlier in our discussion?
1: I don't blame people for wanting to replicate the solutions that we were seeing in British Columbia. For instance, they had a carbon tax. It was reducing emissions. It wasn't incredibly painful. And that was a whole, you know, era of effort. I also don't blame people for thinking at first that because it was originally a conservative climate solution, that maybe there was some sort of bipartisan path forward. However, <laughs> I guess it depends on like where you were working, having. Pushed and fought for those in Oregon and sort of tangentially in Washington state. There was a moment in which, like, all of us failed. We couldn't get it done. And then, like, yes, you do need to pivot into this investment approach. I also don't think that, you know, no offense to the economists, but I'm not sure if they had the power to begin with to stop anything or for the discussion to get derailed. I don't think that in the Green New Deal fight, it's not that. You know, carbon tax or cap and trade somehow got in the way of that momentum. It was a building of from a new generation of a new vision that got us here, learning from the lessons of of what we what we couldn't get done before.
0: if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing that would most accelerate our progress in riding the ship, if you will, what would you change, and how would you change it?
1: Really comprehensive, unfiltered civics education in high schools and colleges. Let's even go to kindergarten. We need to have an electorate that understands both the mechanics and the why and wherefore of, of government. We need pretty revolutionary change across the board, and our education system is not built for that. So if we want you know, the kind of climate policy that we all deserve. We need millions more people activated, immune to the BS coming from the fossil fuel industry, engage with their lawmakers, knowing how to build coalition, knowing how to get stuff done in their communities. And that starts from an early age. What's next
0: for you, Camila?
1: <laughs> I'm taking a break, which I'm enjoying to the fullest. And in kind of final stages of deciding between a few different routes, which because by the time this is published, might be decided. I won't give away too many of the details there, but I'm, I'm very excited to translate the, you know, knowledge and connections that I've built through my Senate work into supercharging the fight on implementation of this bill and the next round of, of policies that we need to pass.
0: And is it fair to assume that you'll end up somewhere in the public sector?
1: Yes, I will be s- staying here forever. <laughs> is there anything I didn't
0: ask that I should have or do you have any parting words for listeners? And let me couch that with we have lots of people that listen to the show and they have many different reasons for listening. But one thing that they tend to have in common is whether they've been working on this problem for a long time or just recently, or they're determined to do it and not doing it and trying to figure out how, they all tend to really care about the problem and feel compelled to try to help, but they might be in many different phases of their journey and also from many different backgrounds, functions, geographies. So there's just some context for you. What do you want them to hear?
1: I wish that I could have a little whiteboard here to draw a Venn diagram that I learned from Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, who's one of the authors of All We Can Save, which is my number one recommendation for climate literature. Read that book, it'll change your life. And what she has designed is this beautiful, simple way of kind of figuring out your place in the movement. And I'm guessing that based on the smile on your face, <laughs> this might've been mentioned on the podcast or you've seen it, but the question of what brings you joy what work needs doing, and what are you good at? And the overlap between those three questions is your climate action.
0: Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Such a different perspective than we've covered before and just a really important one. So again, thank you. I can't wait to see where you end up. And I'm so glad that you're now hopefully a part of the MCJ tribe and a collaborator in the fight, because you're clearly passionate and mission driven. And you've been doing this for a lot longer than I have. And your enthusiasm is infectious. So thank you for coming on the show and also for all of your hard work.
1: Well, Jason, thank you so much. And I want to make myself available to anybody who, you know, is trying to figure out more of the public side. If you want to get engaged in politics or campaigning or organizing or nonprofits, happy to be a resource.
0: Be careful what you wish for because you are going to get buried. So with that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change and our member community to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.